Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Thank you very much for this kind introduction, uh, Ian, and also for the invitation. It's uh, a great pleasure and indeed an honor to be here uh, tonight. And despite the technology that you see in front of me, I'm very grateful to all of you for attending this event and turning it into a live event, which I think is very appropriate uh, for a, a talk on narrative. Etwas erzählen, tell a story, aber ich weiß nichts, but I have nothing to tell. Gut, also ich werde etwas erzählen. All right then, I shall tell you a story, says the narrator in Thomas Mann's short story, The Railway Accident, first printed in 1909. This narrator, a novelist, has something in common with patients composing patient narratives, medical historians composing historiography, doctors composing illness narratives, with everyone telling a story, inasmuch as storytelling is a cultural practice universally shared in order to constitute social and cultural identity, negotiate the past and shape the future, and invest the continuum of time with meaning. Thomas Mann's narrator also reminds the reader of the fact that storytelling is situational, an act of communication between those eager to listen to a story and those about to tell a story. In the opening line of the railway accident, the narrator seems to respond to an audience's request. In reality, it was the request of the Vienna newspaper Neue Freie Presse that prompted Thomas Mann to write the short story. This is the first of many autobiographical tidbits represented in the fictional text. For the author of and narrator in this piece of fiction, although by no means identical, have a lot in common. In fact, in Thomas Mann's work, they often are united, so it seems, in their quest for the perfect patient narrative. And as the author frequently lends the narrator his own voice, so does he weave real patients, including himself, real physicians and medical institutions into protagonists and settings of his novels and short stories. No wonder then that whenever Thomas Mann's narrators announce to be telling a story, an illness narrative is most likely to result, and one that is saturated with the author's or his beloved one's personal experiences of endured illnesses. And although these narratives are firmly rooted in the medical discourses of their respective time of origin, the opening line of the railway accident suggests that telling them doesn't require banks of knowledge. I have nothing to tell. And even more the German, ich weiß nichts, I know nothing, are much stronger than no story is coming to mind. It rather evokes Socrates' dictum, I know that I know nothing, and perhaps it is this radical self-criticism, this skepticism towards received ideas and concepts, and the insight into the limitations of rationality 
that endows someone with sufficient empathy for one's subject, the reconstructive part of storytelling, and care for one's audience, the communicative part of storytelling. All right, then, I shall tell you a story, the narrator goes on. But he doesn't exactly promise to tell the full story because a good story is made up as much of omissions as of its pronouncements in order to become consistent, coherent, original, informative, interesting, moving, intertextual, hopefully appropriate, perhaps entertaining, in any case personal, and whatever else both authors and readers alike of such narrations might expect from a good story. It will have, or it will have already has, a premeditated beginning and ending, an emplotment, transitions, development of suspense. But can an illness or patient narrative possibly figure in such storytelling, such imaginative writing? Is there not a clear-cut dichotomy between the realm of fiction and the territory of non-fiction, where illness or patient narratives authored by patients, relatives, or doctors are usually to be found? Between inventing stories and recording events, between the radical subjectivity of fiction and the aspiration towards objectivity and factuality in non-fiction? Isn't the domain of patients and physicians engaging with illness narratives fundamentally distinct from the domain of novelists, just as historical reconstruction is distinct from creative imagination? What links these two worlds is the fact that stories about illnesses are inevitably representations. They constitute what, using a term introduced by Wolfgang Eser, we might call a second reality, which is only representing the first reality, the experience of illness, in the medium of language. Illness narrative, as the name suggests, is not only about the experience of illness, but also about the transformation of this experience into a story. The illness narrative, whether produced by a patient, a relative, a doctor or a novelist, is always characterized by devices of storytelling employed by an imaginative mind who is transforming lived experience into a narrative. What is more, both illness narratives, the fictional and the, con and the non-fictional, share their emphasis on the individual, stories are rarely told about collectives, and the complexity and integrity of illness experience, which ignores disciplinary boundaries, for instance, between the strictly medical and the non-medical, as well as the common compartmentalization of our everyday experience into the professional versus the private, the emotional versus the rational, the personal versus the social, and so on. In other words, illness and patient narratives inherently focus on the individual as they reflect unique constellations of encounters of a person with a disease, of living circumstances, experiential and intellectual backgrounds, and social environments, even if medical, cultural, social, philosophical, psychological, and religious frameworks of reference which might inform common coping mechanisms are collectively shared. In short, illness narratives could never be written about tuberculosis, but about someone with very specific spatiotemporal coordinates suffering and recovering from or perhaps dying of tuberculosis. In that, 
Illness narratives clearly constitute a counterpoint to the representations of diseases found in medical textbooks and medical scientific discourse, which aim at the typical, the general, the statistically significant. Or to put it differently, yet again, and somewhat crudely, whereas the medical world is primarily concerned with diseases, please note the plural, the illness narrative is concerned with an illness. In this talk, I would like to suggest that the German writer Thomas Mann, author of world classics such as the novels The Buddenbrooks, The Magic Mountain, Dr. Faustus, or the novellas Death in Venice and The Black Swan, Nobel laureate in literature in 1929, and to this day a best-selling author on the international book market, is one of the most important protagonists in the history of the illness and indeed patient narrative. Mann, who painstakingly recorded every single sign of personal illness in his diaries, seems to have been preoccupied with the fear, if not experience, of illness. Most of his short stories and novels feature protagonists suffering from a disease, be it typhus, syphilis, tuberculosis, cholera, or cancer of the uterus, and a lot of his writing is about patients, doctors, and medical institutions, especially the world of sanatoria, in which he felt quite at home. But although his chosen medical topics represent mass diseases, which featured at the top of fear factor statistics at the time when Thomas Mann was producing his fiction, he treats them in a highly individualizing way, by shifting the emphasis from the collective to the individual, from the laboratory to the clinic, from the disease to the patient. Moreover, he places the purely medical scientific discourse on such diseases, which he studied in great depth, into a wider philosophical, historical, and religious context. Writing about such diseases means dealing with one's fear of them, means working through actual or imagined personal suffering, and as far as writing someone else's illness narrative goes, rectifying certain states of affairs, as we shall see in my last, the third example. Let's start by going back to the rather inconspicuous narrator and protagonist of the railway accident. The narrator claims to have experienced a railway accident two years prior to narrating the incident. There seems to be nothing special about it, only 12 pages in the most recent 2004 edition a schmarren, a drivel, as Thomas Mann himself called it in a letter to his brother Heinrich, mainly written for the sake of, of the honorarium offered by the commissioning newspaper. As the readers are told, the accident occurred on a night trip to Dresden, causing considerable damage to the trains involved in the collision, but only very minor injuries to a few passengers who, alongside the uninjured ones, reached their destination in a replacement train with a delay of only three hours. The plot that makes this story worth the author's and reader's attention revolves, at first sight at least, around three main characters, the novelist narrator, a nobleman, and a state representative. The point of the story seems to be that while the initially impressive represent representatives of the nobility and the state turned out to be mere shells without a core, who collapse vis-a-vis -vis the effects of the accident, succumbing to confusion, anxiety, mass panic, disorientation, fear for one's health, 
and of the loss of privileges, the writer's character stands the test of such an accident and remains uncompromised. Even when fearing for his precious manuscript, his honeycomb, his spider web, his nest, his earth, his pride and pain, his all, the best of him, saved and stored up and overheard and sweated over for years, his squirrel's hoard. I don't have to tell you that this is a quote. He doesn't despair, but becomes all the more determined to start again from the beginning. With animal patience, with the tenacity of a primitive creature, the curious and complex product of whose little ingenuity and industry has been destroyed. The artist is superior to those who try to obtain, defend and exploit privileges and root their identity in the vulnerable status symbols that come with membership of the social groups they represent. The nobleman is introduced as a herr, master, lord. The narrator's gaze first captures, captures his pretty dog wanders from the dog leash to its owner's hand and up to the face of the master who from the dog's perspective, temporarily shared by the reader, seems even more impressive and towering. As a master, he has certain rights reserved to a hell and uses swear words such as you tail of a monkey in his dealings with inferior people that only heaven have a right to use. Incidentally, the English translation by Lowe Porter ignores the leitmotif Herr and its derivatives Herrenrecht and Herrenausdruck by alternating between master, man and lord and renders the in view of Darwinian notions not insignificant swear word Affenschwanz, tale of a monkey, as swine. After the accident, we find the same man shouting help. We find him who appeared without fear fearful. We find a hitherto carefully dressed man with spats and a monocle in pyjamas. We find the master appealing to a great God, almighty God, dear God. When the replacement train arrives, the nobleman who had insisted on keeping his dog in his sleeping compartment is forced to leave him in a gloomy prison just behind the engine and to share the carriage with people who have no yellow i.e. first-class ticket. In other words, the accident reduces him socially, morally, aesthetically and economically. The state's representative is a railway guard, the German railway state owned, who with his leather cartridge belt and sergeant major's moustache strikes the narrator as the state too cool. Reliability is writ large upon his brow. He behaves harshly towards an old lady who tries to sneak into a second-class compartment, but servile towards the nobleman who throws his ticket into the guard's face. He is a guarantor of the order of things, especially the hierarchical order of society reflected in the microcosmos of a train. But what a poor wretch after the accident. He limps, he talks about the incident in a newspaper manner, he has become voluble and abandons his official neutrality. The events loosen his tongue and he starts talking to the passengers in confidence about his wife. His cap is gone, as is his self-control. Like the nobleman, his true self, hiding behind a veneer of officialness, 
is exposed by the force of the accident. But is this story really primarily about the triumph of the authenticity of a writer and artist over unauthentic representatives of other echelons of society? Is it a social critique of, or at least a satire on, outlived hierarchies within Wilhelmina's society and the uneven distribution of power, influence, and wealth? About the difference between an earned identity and an inherited or bestowed identity? What could this story possibly reveal about an illness or patient narrative? Mann's denial of it would be my pointed answer. Traces of such an illness narrative, however, have remained in the text, as the description of the accident itself reveals. And I quote, We gave a jerk. But jerk is a poor word for it. It was a jerk of deliberately foul intent, a jerk with a horrid reverberating crash, and so violent that my suitcase leaped out of my hands, I knew not whither, while I was flung forcibly with my shoulder against the wall. I had no time to stop and think. But now followed a frightful rocking of the carriage, and while that went on, one had plenty of leisure to be frightened. End of quote. And after the train comes to a halt, the narrator continues, and then for the first time, I began to feel the shock. It, in a certain weakness of the spine, a passing inability to swallow. The term jerk, the German reads stoß, which implies impact, collision, blow, used four times in my quote, is a key term within the context of a disease called railway spine, which as of the 1860s was a much discussed and hotly debated disease entity caused by frequent and or rough railway journeys, as Esther Fischer-Homberger, Michael Trimble, Thomas Keller, Hans-Peter Schmiedebach, Ralph Harrington and others have beautifully shown using Wolfgang Schievelbusch's pioneering study on the history of railway journeys published in 1977 and now available in its fifth edition. The discourse on this condition, which could become chronic and eventually lead to madness, invalidity and a premature death, is evoked here by Thomas Mann. Why else would he mention a certain weakness of the spine and a passing inability to swallow as a result of hitting with one's shoulder against the wall? There were typical signs of railway spine conceptualized, uh, sorry, these were typical signs of railway spine conceptualized as a nervous disease, a traumatic neurosis, where no evident injuries or anatomical anomalies could be found. The symptoms were similar to those of hysteria, neurasthenia, hypochondria, headaches, dizziness, sleeplessness, weakness of the muscles, accelerated pulse, and enhanced irritability. Typical was their delayed outbreak. In terms of etiology, a molecular process was discussed by which the vibrations to be felt on a train would be translated onto the nerves, shatter them, and eventually cause some damage in the spine or the brain. It was widely believed that neurasthenia, a weakness of the nerves in response to the excessive demands of modern life and its urbanization, mechanization, and industrialization, 
which was frequently diagnosed between the 1880s and World War I, predisposed to the development of railway spine or railway brain when using the train. The nervous stress or the nervous shock of a railway journey, not to mention a railway accident, was thought to hit the nervously disposed harder. The commotion of modern life, epitomized by the train, would hit with murderous suddenness the nervous system of the individual, especially if such an individual had weakened nerves anyway. Living in modernity meant living the delay of the consequences of such collisions. My hypothesis is that the autobiographical background to this story, with its underlying illness narrative, is what prompts Thomas Mann to tell it, or to be more precise, tell some of it, thereby negotiating the communicative and the reconstructive aspect of narrating. This autobiographical background is easy to reconstruct. It is mostly identical to the events related in the short story. On the evening of the 1st of May 1906, the same year as given by the narrator, Thomas Mann took the night train from Munich to Berlin. His destination was Dresden, where he was supposed to arrive 12 hours after departure. But around 9.30 p.m. near the railway station of Regenstauf, shortly after Regensburg, an accident happened. Because of a faulty point, the train was moving on the wrong track and ran into a parking freight train, causing considerable property damage. Six passengers were slightly injured. A replacement train took the passengers and their luggage to Hof, where another train took Thomas Mann to Dresden, where he arrived with a delay of three hours at 10 a.m. Unlike the narrator of his story, of the short story, The Railway Accident, Mann was not on a lecture tour. He was on his way to a sanatorium near Dresden, the Weisser Hirsch, founded by Heinrich Lahmann. He had had a demanding winter, was in need of repose and of having his nerves bolstered. He was traveling not as an acclaimed writer with a substantial manuscript in his luggage, as is the narrator, but as a quasi-patient who was considered and who considered himself a neurasthenic. Lahmann Sanatorium had specialized on an urban clientele suffering from this condition. Arriving there not only with such a diagnosis, but also with the fresh nervous trauma of a railway accident on his outbound journey must have looked like an emergency hospitalization. And uh, I couldn't resist to include these photos um, because they might explain why Thomas Mann was released after only two weeks. He didn't like it very much. Um, and this one shows you that he was one of uh, roughly 4,300 patients during that year, very popular uh, sanatorium at the time. I leave you with this one for a little while. Because of the possible time gap between trauma and the outbreak of the disease, there was still reason for concern when Thomas Mann left the sanatorium about two weeks later. And health worries remained on the writer's mind, as we know from his correspondence. They were apparently easing off when he decided to turn his personal experience into a short story. But he, or just his narrator, still remembered it like yesterday, 
All the details were clear in his memory. The potential, not real, but realistic, and hence to some extent emotionally endured illness as a fear scenario. The neurasthenic author becomes involved in a railway accident and develops railway spine or railway brain, leading to invalidity, madness, or premature death, could now become the object of a short story examining the notion of an increased susceptibility of the neurasthenic to traumatic neurosis such as railway spine. Sorry. <clears throat> the triumphant air of the story's fictitious protagonist reflects the triumph of those who have nerves, who, like the protagonist, have fever, not travel nerves when they travel, over those who seem to have none. In other words, it reflects the author's own triumph over the looming disease. Heroism to me, Thomas Mann wrote in March 1906, is an all the same. Weakness conquered. It also requires tenderness. In conclusion, his short story can be read as an attempt to depathologize, demedicalize the nervous and writ modernity and its representative Thomas Mann of the disease label attached to it by its critiques. My second exploration concerns Thomas Mann's novella, Death in Venice, published in 1912, a year after Thomas Mann's own trip to one of his favorite cities and sea resorts. With some justification and in accordance with Mann's own pronouncements about the novella, Death in Venice can be considered the most autobiographical text in Thomas Mann's oeuvre. <clears throat> as far as its medical motif goes, as I have shown elsewhere in some detail, Mann and his wife had witnessed the outbreak of cholera in the city, where they most likely arrived on the 24th of May 1911, just two days after the first patient had been clinically diagnosed with the disease. The observations the Munns made in the alleyway of Venice, where they would, for instance, encounter a poster like this, issued on the 25th of May 1911. Um, here's a translation of, of some of the lines on the poster in comparison with the way Thomas Mann represents this poster in his novella. The observations the months made in the alleyways of Venice and in their hotel on the Lido, where they saw tourists disappearing uh, and also noticed that there were no reports about cholera in the Italian language newspapers, as well as a conversation they eventually had with a clerk at the Thomas Cook branch near Piazza San Marco, And you see the location here, and this is enlarged. You can see the, uh, the precise location, and it, it's actually uh, given um, in the novella. Those observations and this conversation had prompted them to cut their holiday short and return home to Munich to escape the threat of the potentially fatal disease. The implicit chronology of the novella 
explicitly effaced by its author, but to be reconstructed on the basis of entries in Thomas Mann's notebooks, has led to the conclusion, or has at least led me to the conclusion, that one of the motivating ideas of writing this novella was the question, what if? What if we hadn't fled the city? What if we had arrived somewhat later, say two weeks, when the disease had fully taken hold of the city? What if my enchantment with the Polish boy Tadjo had been stronger than my or my wife's good sense? Thomas Mann knew from newspaper reports published in the Neue Freie Presse that at least one tourist had been diagnosed with cholera only after his return to his hometown. So at least for a few days, an incubation period, he, the hypochondriac in the family, but perhaps also his wife, must have been concerned about their own health or even their lives. When Mann decided to transform his holiday adventure into a novella, this fear had disappeared. But even in hindsight, the shock of a harmless holiday turning into a life-threatening nightmare must have added to the thrill of the emotional adventure. Love and death had always been strong allies in Thomas Mann's imagination. Against this backdrop, it seems permissible to read the novella also as an unreal but realistic and imagined illness narrative that borrows its initial trajectories from the writer's own biography. Gustav von Aschenbach, the protagonist of the novella, faces the threats that Thomas Mann himself escaped from. He takes risks that his creator chose not to take and loses his life. Von Aschenbach's death reflects how Thomas Mann imagined his own death had he stayed in Venice and fallen victim to his love with the Polish youth and to cholera. What is remarkable about this ending is that death comes to Gustav von Aschenbach without the degrading symptoms characteristic of cholera. No rice water stools no fazius cholerica, no confinement to bed or emaciation. Mann was medically justified to choose such a benign death as the concept of cholera sicca, the dry cholera, well known at the time, made plausible such a sudden death in a chair on the beach as a quote from a book on cholera by the German physician and medical historian Georg Sticker published in 1912 illustrates. So when von Aschenbach is said to be feeling ill and suffering from half-corporeal spells of dizziness just hours before his death, and not long after eating infected strawberries, there is no need to speculate about a cause of death different from cholera, as has been done by a number of Thomas Mann scholars who put forward uh, apoplexy as a more convincing cause of death. With cholera sicca, or apoplectica, as it was also called, Thomas Mann had his protagonist find the very death that is looming throughout the novella. In terms of illness narrative, it is interesting to note that Thomas Mann, at least as far as the medical set pieces of his novella are concerned, records the Venetian events of the last week of May as accurately as possible. As a writer of fiction, he responds with truth, with the truth to the tales publicly told by the Venetian authorities and the central government in Rome. He exposes their silencing of the press, 
their crushing of the medical fraternity's opposition and their disinformation campaign. The writer challenges the assumption propagated since classical times in Western culture that poets lie. Medically, Thomas Mann is telling the truth and nothing but the truth more than any contemporary observer as far as I can see. Gustav von Aschenbach's illness, although an illness of a fictitious character, is as realistically and plausibly constructed and embedded in its historical and topographical setting as possible. In the absence of some 200 Venetian illness and patient narratives that could have been told by and about Venetian cholera patients in 1911, but weren't told because of the official cover-up, Gustav von Aschenbach's illness narrative remains an eloquent reminder of unspoken suffering. For my third exploration, we are moving to Thomas Mann's Opus Magnum, his novel Dr. Faustus, published in October 1947. But since Mann's first ideas for this novel originate in the early 1900s, we remain in the de decade we have been examining so far. In 1902, Paul Julius Möbius, a neurologist working in Leipzig, published a study on the pathological in Nietzsche. It was read by Thomas Mann on the evening of the 27th of October 1942 at his residence in Pacific Palisades with, as his diary informs us, the most intense interest, mit stärkster Beteiligung. He would forgive Möbius the mental deficiencies exhibited in his book, as though he were not right from his point of view, says Thomas Mann. His point of view is that of degenerationism and hereditarianism, a medical point of view shaped by theories and nosology, the kind of view that enjoyed great prominence at the fin de siècle and beyond. But at the same time, it is the point of view of one who equates the average with the normal and who suspects any departure from it to be a degeneracy. A summary of Möbius's thesis with regard to the pathography of Nietzsche would go something like this. The philosopher was a degeneré supérieur, that is, born with the hereditary illness of degeneracy, who nonetheless, and despite the resulting character flaws and intelligence deficiencies, is capable of high achievements in certain areas, while essentially remaining a dilettante in all other respects. The signs of his degeneracy are both bodily and, in Nietzsche's case, at least to a much greater extent, mental in their nature. In the former category, we find small ears, facial asymmetries, the admixture of Slavic blood. Mental signs are instability, irreligious individualism, or lack of herd instinct, one-sidedness of gifts, talent in music, poetry, and language, weak in art, mechanics, and mathematics, impulsive conditions of the soul, a nomadic lifestyle, lack of harmony and sophrosyne, immorality, and the preference for composers and writers with nervous illnesses such as Schumann, Wagner, Hölderlin, Stendhal, Flaubert, Dostoevsky, and Baudelaire. 
Fundamentally, Nietzsche was a belletrist through and through a writerly degeneré, the type of character that is usually called modernity, says Möbius in a rather strange syntax. It was then, on the basis of such hereditary degeneracy and not in a way completely independent of it, that Nietzsche had found himself in a brothel in Cologne in February 1865, a visit which he recounted to his friend Paul Deussen in the following way. I found myself suddenly surrounded by half a dozen apparitions in tinsel and glitter who eyed me expectantly. I stood for a while speechless. Then I moved away instinctively towards a piano as towards the only entity in that company endowed with a soul and played a few chords. These released me from my numbness and I managed to regain the open air. End of quote. Nietzsche, a born moralist, had been, quote, constrained by pure curiosity to eat of the apple. End of quote. And it was therefore no wonder that, and I quote again, sources which cannot, of course, be identified by name relate that Nietzsche had had sexual intercourse even in Leipzig when a student there, and that he later from time to time had relations with people who, it can't be helped, make themselves available for the fulfillment of men's needs, end of quote. In this context, one cannot, of course, talk of love. It is simply a question of, quote, means of discharging. In the process, as we learn from other passages scattered throughout Möbius's book, a poison had entered his body, a poison which was to lead 15 years later to the outbreak of disease and in the end to mental breakdown, progressive paralysis and madness. But the poison had had the effect even before that of aggravating Nietzsche's inherited migraine of opening the way to erroneous doctrines and of enabling the philosopher to choose as his own divinity Dionysos, the patron saint of hysteria. What Nietzsche's friends saw as the furor poeticus of Zarathustra, Möbius interprets rather as a furor poetico-paralyticus. Although Möbius does not himself believe that a brain illness may increase the intellectual capacities, he does admit that colleagues have described such cases. It is not, in his view, totally refutable, considering that paralysis always seeks out its places in the brain in a very specific way. If inhi inhibiting fibers in the brain were destroyed, then possibly Möbius concedes it reluctantly and in a purely hypothetical way that a failure of the sense of fatigue and a euphoria, hence an increased capacity of the working parts, might be expected. The stimulation might, again hypothetically and without Möbius actually believing in such a possibility, lead to a hyperemia which would facilitate an increase in work. Such effects, Möbius relates, can be explained by an analogy with alcohol. What alcohol brings about may also be brought about by paralysis. Thus Möbius sees in Nietzsche's style the expression of either a youth excited by wine, or a riotous drinker of schnapps. Fundamentally, however, and in his overall analysis, Möbius, in some sort of thought experiment, puts Nietzsche on trial and warns the reader of his book in his final speech for the prosecution, do not trust the man, 
he is mentally diseased. Whether Thomas Mann also read Möbius' book shortly after its publication has so far been impossible to establish. There are, however, some strong indirect indications that he may have done so, uh, and I've analyzed them elsewhere. Meaning that Möbius' book must have triggered Mann's early 1904 plan for work on a syphilitic artist. Before we now jump at the conclusion that Dr. Faustus was written as a rebuttal of Möbius' book, controversial book, let us consider Thomas Mann's position in detail. He certainly never agreed with those who hotly disputed the diagnosis of syphilis given by Nietzsche's Basel and Jena doctors and confirmed vigorously by Möbius. First and foremost, the philosopher's sister, Elizabeth Förster, who spoke of a disgusting accusation. She had, in fact, hired Möbius specifically to write a pathography of her brother, but was shocked by the result and the vile insinuations it contained. Right up to her death in 1935, she took every opportunity to strongly deny any of these insinuations. Thomas Mann also uses the brothel experience, as Deussen and Möbius described it in the 16th chapter of his novel. In a letter from the main protagonist, Adrian Leverkuhn, to the narrator, Serenus Zeitblum, Leverkuhn tells of his early days as a student in Leipzig when a tourist guide took him into a bawdy house where, and I quote, a nut-brown lass in Spanish jacket with large mouth, stubbed nose, and almond eyes stroked his cheek with her, with her arm before Leverkuhn was able to flee the hellhole of lust. The hellhole of lusts, sorry. Möbius' story of the Leipzig doctors who said they knew of Nietzsche's syphilis infection was also used by Thomas Mann, but with significant modifications. There were certainly more gaps to be filled in the perceived narrative, as Möbius had neither named his source nor specified when and where Nietzsche might have been infected. Since Kurt Hildebrandt and Erich Podach had justifiably doubted the syphilis diagnosis in their books published in 1926 and 1930, respectively, and the rumor was only brought up again in Wilhelm Lange Eichbaum's Nietzsche book, which appeared in the same year as Dr. Faustus, Thomas Mann was left with almost nothing to build on. The impression that Möbius was only a rather sparse source is confirmed by Lange Eichbaum, who wrote in 1947, and I quote, In 1930, a Berlin neurologist told me that Nietzsche had infected himself with syphilis in a Leipzig brothel during his time as a student there, and that he had been treated for syphilis by two Leipzig physicians. End of quote. He went on to say, and all this has recently been summarized in a much debated article by Leonard Sachs, that the neurologist had received this information from Möbius, and that he, Lange Eichbaum, had talked to the brother of Möbius and the son of one of the two Leipzig physicians, both of whom confirmed the story. By that time, letters proving the story had been destroyed. Thomas Mann chooses to believe the rumor, but turns it into a very different story. Instead of credible expert witnesses, whose identities are concealed by colleagues sworn to secrecy and confidentiality, Thomas Mann's doctors are rather dubious characters who are not only named and whose names are all over town, 
Leverkuhn claims to have found them in a street directory, but who come to a very undignified end by almost dying in the open or being led away in handcuffs by the vice squad in bright daylight. What is more, because of their fate, they hardly get to apply their trades. They are thus not only poor healers, as a number of other pairs of doctors in Thomas Mann's work, but don't even get an opportunity to show their ultimate incompetence. Perhaps unsurprisingly, they are themselves marked by signs of degeneracy. One of them, Dr. Erasmi, a heavyset man with a red face and black goatee, had a way of puffing air between his pouted lips, while the other, Dr. Zimbalist, suffers from a kind of tick that lifted one cheek and a corner of the mouth while the eye joined in with a squint. Neither of them appears to be as disciple of Asclepius, but rather delegates of the devil, as is as insinuated by their colouring, that is, Erasmus' red face and Symbolist's red hair. Their quite literal disappearance from the novel may be an ironic allusion to all the secrecy mentioned above. That Leverkuhn had found the address listed in the street directory is mentioned twice more in the novel. And as the first mention was added to the manuscript by hand, this information can be seen as a clear signal, an ironic jab that shows how simple it would be for anyone to discover the hidden identity of these doctors and also just how irrelevant that is. Dermatologists are, after all, quite superfluous when it comes to Thomas Mann's real interest in syphilis, as we shall see. The disappearance of the doctors also enables Thomas Mann to question the dividing line that proponents of the theory of degeneration, such as Möbius, drew between the healthy on the one hand and the insane, the criminal, the prostitute, and the artist on the other. Mann turns the table by presenting both doctors as themselves marred by markers of degeneracy, and one of them as a criminal. Mann's fictional version of a dubious episode in Nietzsche's life also makes it possible to omit the realm of sexuality, which otherwise would have had to become an issue when it came to the primary stages of syphilis. A localized infection is all that the author has to say on the topic. Contrary to Möbius and his lubricious innuendos, Thomas Mann is less interested in syphilis as a sexually transmitted disease that at least temporarily manifests itself on the sexual organs, but much more in the infectious disease that ultimately attacks the brain and thus relates to the fields of neurology and psychiatry, which Mann himself had a far greater affinity for. Syphilis as an affliction of the soul and the intellect can also be seen in Adrian's actual infection experience. In direct contrast to Möbius, the narrator, Serenus Zeitblom, insists that it might have been possible that love was involved when Leverkuhn first visits his hetaira Esmeralda and even follows her to Pressburg after she had to leave her former place of employment to undergo hospital treatment. Entirely in contrast to contemporary stereotypes of syphilitic prostitutes as the donors of the disease or perpetrators and the man as the recipient or victim, as Mary Spongberg has shown, in the novel, the initiative is taken by the man. And instead of a degenerate, amoral, depraved representative of a homogeneous profession that must be policed and subjected to health controls, 
readers encounter in Esmeralda an individual who has heart, tender emotions, and a certain sense of responsibility. She expressly warns Leverkuhn to be wary of her body, and this information is italicized in the novel. How different is Möbius' self-empowerment when as a doctor he declares a whole epoch modernism to be a patient and as a medical expert sets about taking this whole epoch and its representatives to task. How different his talk of discharging in connection with Nietzsche's apocryphal brothel experience. Leverkuhn contracts syphilis but with the pathogenic agent he receives what Thomas Mann had called intoxication, rausch, stimulant, and inspiration, the capacity to create wonderful works of genius in a state of enraptured enthusiasm, something that Möbius, according to his own testimony, had never seen in patients and of which experts he had asked would have none. Why are spirochetes capable of stimulating Leverkuhn's brain? A partial answer is because they are neurotropic. Let's listen to the devil to whom Leverkuhn has sold his soul for the acquisition of genius in his musical output even before having slept with Esmeralda. In short and plain, metaspirochetosis, that is the meningeal process, and I do assure you that it is indeed as if some certain of these small folk may have a passion for the uppermost, a special estimation for the region of the head, the meninges, the dura mater, the tentorium and the pia, which defend the tender parenchyma within and would swarm ardently thither from the moment of that first general infection. Liebhaber der cerebralen Sphäre, brain specialist whose pastime is the cerebral sphere in John E. Wood's excellent translation. In these words, the devil resorts to a medico-scientific discourse of the early 20th century about the existence of a virus nerveux, that is, about the question whether a special neurotropic variety of the spirochete exists which affects predominantly the nervous system in contrast to the ordinary dermotropic variety which involves, by preference, the skin, the skin and other tissues. The notion of a virus nerveux or of a syphilitic toxin is not to be found in Möbius, but Thomas Mann was familiar with this debate. <coughs> as its key term, virus nerveux, is explicitly mentioned in the novel. He read about it in considerable detail in Wilhelm Gennerich's book Die Syphilis, des Zentralnervensystem, Syphilis of the Central Nervous System, published in 1921. Gennerich considered meningeal syphilis an important link between primary syphilis and metallus of the central nervous system. He concluded that all diseases of the central nervous system caused by syphilis can be traced back to an inflammation of the cerebral pia, in fact, its basal parts. Thomas Mann uses an exclamation mark, plus underlining, in his copy after having read Gennerich's further conclusion that syphilitic meningitis, lingering for up to two decades, is the basis and prodromal stage of general paralysis. Gennerich interprets the metallus or metasyphilis, both of which he uses as umbrella terms for tabus dorsalis and general paralysis, as a meningitis of the convexity of the cerebrum, the symptoms of which include a modest disgruntlement or irritability swiftly exacerbating into 
respectively melancholy or mania, occasionally also followed by considerable impairment of intelligent, intelligence sorry, and weakness of memory, as we see them in paralytic dementia. The pronounced mood swings, the almost simultaneous weeping and laughing, the pliability of the intellect, the fleetingness of intellectual ideas, and the slowness of thought processes are all characteristic of these mental disorders caused by syphilis. For those of you who have read Dr. Faustus, it won't come as a surprise that Thomas Mann also marked this passage in the margins of Genrich's book. For instance, for the simple reason that he also portrays Leverkuhn as melancholic. Such signs of use illustrate that the writer felt medically authorized to ascribe the sort of cerebrosity, brainliness, to the spirochetes that the devil is talking about. In contrast to Möbius, the devil in Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus advocates the genius-releasing properties of syphilis stricto sensu. Even the motif of genius-releasing properties, the popularity of which in non-medical literature has been noted by a number of scholars, has a medical fundamentum in Ray. Long before the identification of the spirochete and its isolation from brain tissue, Physicians seriously discussed whether syphilis was capable of increasing the cognitive, intellectual, and affective faculties of those afflicted, at least temporarily. The French physician Victor Parent devoted an entire article to this question, which was published in 1887 in the Annales Médico-Psychologique, incidentally one of the few publications referenced in Möbius's book on Nietzsche. In this article, Parent assembled a number of case histories of patients from the Maison de Santé in Toulouse, of which he was medical director. These case histories seem to confirm the thesis of a suractivité intellectuelle, an intellectual overactivity, during the prodromal phase of general paralysis, and were thus consistent with the ideas circulated in the research literature of the time. In the second part of his article, Parent provided an overview of contemporary research and mentions in chronological order Jacques-Joseph Moreau, Jules Favre, Emmanuel Régis, Benjamin Ball, and Auguste Voisin as proponents of the theory that the prodromal phase of general paralysis is characterized in certain cases by an intellectual overactivity without delirium or dementia. Based on the empirical evidence of his case histories, Parent proposed that such enhancement of cognitive, intellectual, and affective properties could continue over a longer period of time than generally assumed, didn't necessarily build on pre-existing abilities, and was frequently associated with alcoholism. In some people, alcohol apparently worked hand-in-hand -hand with the syphilitic poison in stimulating people rather than numbing them. Pathophysiologically, he contemplates functional changes in the brain and speaks much more confidently than Möbius of hyperemia. The debate about the genius-releasing properties of syphilis needs to be seen in the context of the Société Médico-Psychologique, founded in 1852, and the concept of folie résonante, a delusional form of any psychosis marked by a thought process that seems logical but lacks common sense which features highly on the society's research agenda. 
The debate about a virus nerveux or syphilitic toxin can be considered offshoots of discussions within the Société on the superactivité intellectuelle. Möbius distanced himself from it in unambiguous terms. Thomas Mann seems to have embraced it. A brief conclusion. We've been looking at three illness narratives in the works of Thomas Mann. The first two had an autobiographical background and can thus be considered patient narratives. They blend objectifiable data, real health concerns, and emotionally experienced threat scenarios with imagination. The first, the railway accident, is a story of triumph which reduces the actual illness narrative to a few clues. The second, Death in Venice, continues a journey which started in real life, led to a crossroad at which the author and the protagonist part. The former chooses abstention and health, the latter passion and death. Thomas Mann opts for the former, but his imagination stays with the latter. In conjunction, the autobiographical and the Im imaginative parts constitute the illness narrative that is underlying his novella. The third illness narrative, underlying Dr. Faustus, reflects a patient very dear to Thomas Mann. He is part of his intellectual triumvirate, his Dreigestirn, Schopenhauer, Wagner, Nietzsche. It is written as a contrafactum to illness narratives produced by medical doctors whose accounts reside as much in the realm of fiction as Thomas Mann's. And isn't it in the nature of an illness or patient narrative that it is as much concerned with the factual as with the fictitious, as much with objectifiable health data as with hopes and fears, denial and delusion, as much with actual suffering as with potential suffering, as much with irrational responses to illness as with rational insight into a disease. And isn't the dichotomy between fiction and non-fiction entirely unsuitable to capture this peculiar blend that constitutes the genre of illness narrative? Patients, doctors and authors of fiction have all made important contributions to this genre and will continue to learn from each other. And I'm sure Thomas Mann's works will continue to feature prominently in such a fascinating arena. Thank you very much for your patience. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk slash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.